Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I, I taught myself how to literally produce music, p- play electric guitar, play the piano, and edit videos and like shoot videos. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to musical comedian Matty Hudson. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they used to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. Okay, so we'll go from the middle way. So yeah, like the Buddhist principle of the middle way, I think, sums it up really nicely. I like that you said that, like, um, I've been in time, I've had times in my life where I've tried, like, you know, I've thought I need to be, like, successful at any cost. Yes. You know, and I'll put my life on hold bef- until I'm successful. Mm. I think loads of comedians do that, actually. Mm. I see loads of comedians be like, I will not get a girlfriend or I will work a really soul-destroying job because soon I'll be, like, famous and then then I can start enjoying my life. And I think it's a risky move. Agreed. I think it's a risky move. It's a big risk to think I, I will start enjoying myself when I'm successful. Mm. And the older you get, the more risky that becomes, mm-hmm. right? So, like, you do just need to balance. If you're, like, being so driven that you're just not enjoying yourself, it's not worth it. Mm. You know, your whole life will pass you by. You're not enjoying anything. And it's easy to enjoy yourself in the moment. You don't have to be a famous comedian to enjoy yourself. You know, there's lots of things to enjoy about life. Um, you can have really fulfilling relationships. <laughs> of course, that's such an obvious thing to say. Mm. I think some people do fucking miss that. Mm. Um, and But equally, I think... I've, you know, and then I've also had periods in my life where, like, I've just done fucking nothing. You know, I've just wanted to just go and get pissed on a Friday night. And I've just spent the rest of the week just what playing video games. You know, definitely in my early 20s, I was a lazy guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I had loads of catching up to do. 
because there were people like I just I was basically when I was like 20 it was oh no when I was like yeah graduated uni I had no idea what I wanted to do for a job I was just working in a call center in Warrington earning like 14 grand a year and I was just getting screamed at by Vodafone customers all day and I was like okay you need to um, do something here because no one is going to stop you from this, this this just being your life yeah so I need to like get moving and that was a time where I had to like just try and get myself into a better life position and I had to just commit to working really hard for a bit and making some stuff happen so that's the art the 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 balance is the obvious bit I think everyone knows they have to get balance right it's like trying to work out what that balance is yeah and it's going to be different for every individual yeah yeah that's a great answer um Matty, where can people follow you to keep up to date with your content and where you're gigging and so forth? Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me around, Steve. I mean, this exactly. has been so, it's been so nice to chat to you again, man. Yeah, you too. I've always enjoyed our, our conversations. When we've, they've either been in passing or at gigs. I remember the first time we did... I remember the very first time I met you was at the Musical Comedy Awards. I didn't think we'd met before that. I don't think so. And I remember passing you on the stairs before the gig and within two minutes, we we would improv. We were doing an improv bit <laughs> with each other, and it was just very natural, and it, oh, it didn't nice. feel very forced. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but I like him. Oh, nice! I felt that. I've always felt that about you. Yeah, we always we've always gotten into it, you know. Yeah, and I hope we gig together soon for sure. Um, but yeah, um, uh, you can find me on Matty Hudson, M A T T Y Hudson with a T. People never find me. Everyone thinks it's Hudson. Uh, Matty Hudson on Instagram. I can't remember what my TikTok handle is, but it's Matt Hudson 15, I think, or something. And then Twitter's just at Matt Hudson. Yeah, just put have a look on that. I've got loads of comedy videos, loads of musical comedy, loads more to come. So yeah, I mean, I feel like we've just had a very sincere chat about Buddhism and that when people... See my videos and that. Who is this guy? <laughs> but I think that's really interesting though, because they get to see, you know, the real Matty. Yeah, it's been, well, another it's, a side of Matty. Yeah, it's been nice to have this chat. You know, like I, I don't think I've ever talked publicly in this way before. So. Oh well, I appreciate you, yeah. you doing so and being so forthright and, and honest. And I'm sure other people will, will do and really be, be able to really will be really be able to relate to what you've said and your experiences. I hope so. So uh, thank you. If you hated it, don't tell me. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that won't be the case. Matty, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, mate. Awesome. Perfect. Matty Hudson in the building, quite literally. Thank you for having me. Steven. It's been um it's been a long time. This is a face-to-face, should I say, in case anyone didn't pick up on the in the building literally, we're doing a face-to-face podcast, which is quite a delight. Um we always seem to bump into each other, we were saying before, in just ran, at random moments that aren't necessarily related to comedy. I think we have, I think we're uh, kindred spirits, you and I. Do you? You know, I think, um, yeah, we, I always, whenever I've got like a little niche interest that I go to on my own, I think none of my friends will be into this. This is where I always bump into you. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <laughs> it's very true. Yeah. So the last song we sang was the um, Max Richter concert. Yeah. Minimalist composer Max Richter. <laughs> In the Crystal Palace. Got all emotion. I dragged my ex-girlfriend too. 
Um, no, she loved it as well. Too. It was really good. But um, yeah, I did the same. <laughs> but yeah, I love all that like ambient music and stuff like that. And um, I often will go to that on my own or something, or like with like yeah, I get girlfriend too. Um, and it's nice to meet someone else that kind of likes that stuff enough to go watch <laughs> just very sleepy music for two hours. Yeah, I mean, I've got playlists dedicated to it. I mean, we'll we'll come on to the music side of things because there is a crossover there. Although, I'll bet different styles, mm. I guess we can both be described as musical comedians. I would say yeah. you, you are mu- more musically inclined than me. Maybe, maybe. Um, and then before that, I think there's the Buddhist stuff, which we'll get onto. We seem to bump into each other, London Buddhist Centre, yeah. or Serene-like. Yeah, I've got a lot to talk to you about that. Okay. I had some good Buddhist experiences this year. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I'm very well. We could kick off with that if you like. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I did my first Vipassana retreat. Oh, wow. I mean, you are looking very Serene-like. Thank you. I'm just really hungover. Okay. That was well. <laughs> I'm just tired. <laughs> But um, I, yeah, I did my first Vipassana retreat in November. In um, So have you, have you done one? No, I haven't done Vipassana. I've done the 10-day via Tree Ratna. And for those that don't know, I mean, I've talked a lot about the London Buddhist Centre on this yeah, podcast, yeah, yeah. but Tree Ratna is the, I guess, Buddhist organisation that's sort of uh, the overarching Buddhist organisation London Buddhist Centre are part of. Yeah. So it and, used to be like the Western Buddhist Order did it. And, and then they, they rebranded. Renamed, so yeah. It's kind of like a kind of um, Western influenced Buddhist. Yeah. Buddhism, would you say? I don't know. I've not, I've not, I think you have much more experience with the Buddhist Center than me. I love the London Buddhist Center. And uh, I used to go a lot. But um, I kind of have just like, so I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Buddhist, I don't think. But um, I. Or saying that I also do love everything about it and think it's all really true. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Do you? Th- I I find I still find it in an, yeah. in sort of eternal struggle when you come across this thing and you believe that there's an element of it. You think, oh, this is this is the truth, right? If I followed this, I would probably be a very content person. Yeah. But there's a whole other part of you which is which sort of drives you to be on stage and to perform yeah, and yeah, to create. Yeah. And that requires an ego and balancing the two out is quite, it's quite a difficult thing. I mean, totally. That's the whole thing I think is, um, I'm gonna just... know, there are like, I think Buddhism and like kind of, um, you know, like the, the, the kind of basic tenets of Buddhism of like um, reducing kind of attachment and clinging in, in order to, increase your kind of contentment yeah and your um like stillness in life you know that is just so true but then i also have to reckon with the fact that i am a very externally validated person that completely loves attention <laughs> and that does bring me genuine joy yeah you know? that's a good point like i did a gig on um you know and i i think you speak to a lot of comedians i'm sure you've spoken to loads of this podcast and i think loads of comedians have quite a difficult relationship with comedy Mm. you know that egoic thing I think is a problem and I think people see it as unhealthy but I think I have quite a healthy relationship with comedy like I just really enjoy it especially at the moment after the pandemic and stuff I'm just really enjoying gigging really enjoying making audiences laugh I find it very fulfilling have you always been that way or do you think since pandemic's over you've you found a, you've got a newfound appreciation for it definitely yeah well i think it's like it's like a well so I, I think it's kind of like a kind of emerging of two things so i think when i initially got into comedy 
it was definitely from from maybe an un- unhealthy place is the wrong way of putting it but i think it was like a needy place you know i mm-hmm. was like i just really wanted some attention i felt very unfulfilled right didn't really know how to go about it and i just found this thing that was like oh there's a there's a thing that you can go to that people just have to look at you and pay attention to you yeah and all i have to do is make people laugh and they'll kind of that that's the deal yeah. right that's the exchange that you get right and it was definitely a very, very much coming from like a place of um i don't think that i am um kind of worthy of people's attention just in right. normal life okay yeah. yeah yeah so i need to go out there and um find a skill or a talent yeah. that makes me kind of worthy of attention right you know um like you know when i was younger very low self esteem all okay. that kind of stuff right but then i have like over the past like um I'd say like in, in my twenties, you know, early twenties was kind of like very like quite anxious, quite depressed guy, you know, um, doing comedy compulsively all the time, but just like really hanging my, um, self-worth on how it was going. I can fully relate to that. <laughs> I can fully relate to that. But the sad thing is, is that I'm a bit older than you and I had that realization probably at a much later stage in right, life. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's taken me a lot longer to figure it out. So, how, so what year did you start? What, what year did you get into comedy? Well, Call so me. I did it a little bit at uni. Mm. Um, I kind of wrote some stuff and then okay. I did it a couple of times in Manchester, um, always with the guitar. So I did like musical comedy. So I, with like an acoustic guitar singing funny songs, basically. And um, then I went to Canada and I went to Toronto. Oh, cool. Maybe when I was like 24, Four twenty-five, um, towards the end of that year, and I was like really heartbroken. I just had this relationship with this um, um, girl who lived in London. I lived in Manchester. Times like a longest relationship that ended. Oh no, that actually that was still going at that point. But I just went to Canada okay. despite being like head over heels in love with this girl, and um, I um, was just like really upset that I wasn't with her basically it was like a bad move to go to Canada right <laughs> so I just did comedy every single night because that was because like I think when I initially booked that trip I was single and I thought oh, I'll just go and like um you know meet a nice Canadian girl and have a really nice time in Canada. but instead I was just like really missing this girl and kind of like why did I come here and so just to kind of make it a worthwhile trip I just did stand up every night and I and the scene there was really kind of funny and just unusual. Like it was a bit more like an American stand-up scene where, where like you go to these open mics. It was just like five hours long, hundreds of comedians. It felt like were on the bill. Like sometimes you'd be like three minutes. Yeah. Everyone, all the comedians were just really high. They just smoked loads of weed <laughs> and no one would watch the act. So you kind of, there was this one open mic I used to do and the, the gig was upstairs and, all the comedians would sit downstairs smoking weed. So there'd be like 50 comedians just downstairs talk, talking to each other. Then you would just go upstairs like five minutes before your set, do your set to no one, maybe like the two people on after you. Um, and then you'd go back downstairs and just hang out with the comedians. Like it was a complete waste of time. Yeah, but not at the same time. It probably gives you that yeah. thick skin, you know. So when you come back to the open, the open mic circuit in London, you're kind of prepared for it. Definitely. What, so, so what London year was, was this? Like so much easier compared to the I, Canada. Yeah, I can imagine. What year was that that you were out in Canada then? 
Oh, I think it's 2014, 2015, maybe. Okay. And then you came to London when? And then I came back to London to move to move with this girl to like to like move to London for, to be in the, in the same. So I'm laughing girl. just because now it's starting to make sense. Your, you know, your whole stage persona and your act. Yeah, yeah. It's like a little. So yeah, I should maybe explain. My I'm just kind of like a heartbroken singer songwriter, <laughs> basically. I mean, the act's kind of changed a little bit these days. But yeah, like, definitely. When you, I was gigging with you a lot. It was like a kind of just like clueless singer-songwriter who was just really upset and really yeah. heartbroken, for sure. And all those songs were written during that time where I was just really heartbroken and really like, um, uh, it was coming from a, a real place. Yeah. What was the one song, what was the name? Oh, it was Ka- Karen. Karen, this yeah, is pre- Karen. Karen has, now, I can't really do that song anymore because the word Karen has changed. Right. Now, now it's a term for like a kind of entitled white woman, I guess. But it was just a random name I did then. And I, I would like, it was a song about how I'd gotten over my ex-girlfriend and how I was doing fine now, but then I would just sporadically scream the name Karen over and over so again. good. <laughs> it's so good. I remember because we were doing with the Musical Comedy Awards. Mm. 2016 was the first year I did it. I yeah. think that was the first year you did it. It was like that year you got to the finals. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And when you did that, I was just like, okay, this is game over. <laughs> this is fucking funny. That was a good one. Yeah. It was a good, good uh, crowd pleaser. It was a funny... I always found that venue weird, though. I don't know. Yeah, the like, Phoenix. Yeah. I thought this sort of the way that it was spread out. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of like, I don't know, the acoustics were quite odd. Very strange room. And all this, also, those, those heats were in the afternoon, right? They were in the afternoon. That was it. And I would get really drunk during those as well. So I'm just getting really drunk at like 2 p.m., um, they were fun though, you know. You, it's rare you get to gig with musical comedians actually. Yeah. Usually don't put us in the same bill. So the musical comedy was is nice to like meet other, other music and see what kind of everyone's doing. Yeah. There's such a wide variety of acts. People yeah, doing yeah. so many different things. Yeah. A lot of awful musical comedy out there as well. It's a really. I mean, it's not awful. <laughs> the parameter for quality is pretty low, isn't it? People, people often say to me like. I don't really like musical comedy. You're all right, but I don't really like it. Yeah, I kind of agree, actually. Yeah. It's a difficult, it it is a difficult balance, you know, and not to like big ourselves up or anything, but to, you don't want the music to be shit. The the comedy needs to be of a certain caliber and quality and you need to retain the audience's attention throughout. Yeah. Are you thinking about all that while you're making, while you're writing stuff? Definitely. I, I, I want my songs to have like the same gag rate as um, a stand-up set. Yeah. You know, because I only, I, I think some other musical comedians like almost are a bit more in the camp of like music. And, yes. Like, yeah. And like uh, they can kind of, they, people like the music and they kind of like it's a bit funny, but I only really perform in comedy clubs. So I need my stuff to be as funny as the comedian that came before me and the comedian came out, you know, ideally funnier. Um, and so, and that's the challenge I think in musical comedy is getting a quick gag rate because obviously you've got the cadence of the song to deal with. So you need to, sometimes you need to find like jokes that break across two lines or that like, or sometimes you need to stop, stop the music and make a joke or some, and then sometimes you can build lots of tension in a song. That's what music's great for, right? It's building emotional tension. I think that's one of the great things that musical comedians have over standups. Yeah. You can build tension really, really easily and really effectively. Um, but then you've got to have a big release, a big punchline to follow that, you know. It's always got to be paid off 
with a laugh. Um, and if you stop doing that as a musical comedian, I think, first of all, other comedians just start to hate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you're like, who's this fucking guy making a nice song in the middle of our comedy show? And um, the chord arrangements were outstanding. <laughs> this progression was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> no, one wants, no one wants that in a comedy club, I don't think. Yeah. I think so. it's nice to have it sound like a real song. Yeah. And I like that. I always try and I think it's the other, the total other side of that is in musical comedy, there are a lot of musical comedians out there that I think are bad musicians. Right. Yeah. And, um, that is a bit of a cardinal sin for me as well. Mm. You know, I think you should, the, the fear with musical comedy is that you come across as a person who is, neither good at comedy or good at music mm. and so they become a musical comedian when what you really want people to think is wow this guy is a great musician and a great comedian yeah he's a, he's a double threat <laughs> yeah and, and an all-round great guy <laughs> i'm just or a girl. fantastic guy to chat to as well um who were your like templates in terms of did you have anyone that you looked up at as a musical comedian like that's that's where i want to be those are the go-to people but when I was a kid, it was definitely Bill Bailey. You know, I think okay. Bill Bailey is, I think he's a really just underrated comedian in the UK. I think he, you know, he's like a huge fucking theatre stadium act. Yeah. Um, that doesn't really ever get brought up in terms of like great comedian decisions. Mm. Yeah. You know? But he is like, in terms of just band cologne, got a huge fan base. And he, I just think he's so, and he does like stand up in between, like, you know, tells jokes, just got joke jokes. And he's just also his physical comedy is outstanding. Yeah. Just, just, we're back on. I think um, I had the, the mic was on a wrong setting, which it's going to sound really egotistical, but basically I was louder than you were. So <laughs> it was picking me up from my side. And so right, you right, were being right. picked up from my side as well. <laughs> Unintentional, of course. <laughs> but now, now we've rectified that. It's now uh, I can really shine. You know, now you can shine. That's, and that's your that's time. On me. Yeah. Ooh, that was a lucky escape there. Imagine if you've done the whole thing and I've sent it to you. I didn't say anything. <laughs> and, you, and you're listening back. You're like, well, this guy. You'll turn me up a little bit, mate. <laughs> I do it with every guest. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Steve Whiteley Show. Myself and Maddie <laughs> Um, but yeah, what were we talk about? Bill Bailey. Bill Bailey, yeah. So he was he was sort of one of the I don't know role, yeah. role models, as it were, you'd say, or a comedy a musical a musical comedy hero. Well, he's also like like an amazing like multi instrumentalist. Yeah, like um, he does lots of um, something that I don't I can't really do because I'm not like an amazing musician. He like will like do a lot of like jokes where there's the music itself is the punchline. You know, like tur yeah. turning. Um, a major song into a minor song yeah. or like turning like a um, or like changing the genre of a song there's loads of that stuff mm. right and there's and I think that is like a very skillful type of comedy I think mm. it's difficult so it happens more and more these days I think you know people, a lot of people on TikTok do stuff like that now but I think they've got Bill Bailey to thank for it he was the he was the originator of all that stuff master. I think yeah. yeah so talking of TikTok, uh, I know you're you're creating a lot of content now. Content, everyone likes content. Yeah. Um, talk me through 
I guess you started during the pandemic. Yeah. Firstly, how how are you affected by all that once gigs were out of the question? Well, yeah, so I was like, oh, because I was like originally kind of writing an Edinburgh show. This is where 20, this is, I, I can't even remember what year it was. 2020. Beginning of 2020, yeah. So I think, I, yeah, I had a room booked, I think for a full run of Edinburgh and I was kind of writing a show. It was called Soft Boy. <laughs> Um, on brand yeah that show will never see the light of day I don't think I think it I think it there was stuff about it that I quite, quite liked but um, so you haven't recycled any of that material for your upcoming Edinburgh I think I've got one song that I still do from okay. in my set I've still got one song from that right um, but um, I was kind of like a concept show of just like very much like at that point I was um, yeah like almost like it was almost like a character of like a yeah. singer, like a heartbroken like singer songwriter that thinks he's cool and thinks he's like he's just like a soft boy singer songwriter basically. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you yeah, had the pandemic hit, and I was like, okay, what are we gonna do here? And then I'd seen people like doing like musical comedy online and stuff. And look, do you remember like in 2020, like all com- like loads of comedians just started doing like those like sketch like front facing camera mm-hmm. sketches. Yeah. Little like premise on the top caption and i was like oh i think there's kind of some in that there's i was i just realized i kind of missed a trick you know and like actually musical comedy works really well online it's like a really um something that's like not lots of people doing it and um it was also a chance for me because i was just using that the acoustic guitar um in all my, I'd never, and I was kind of a bad guitarist, but I didn't really know any music theory. I knew like five chords or whatever. So you just picked up guitar on your own? Yeah. Right. Well, I had lessons when I was a kid, but okay. mostly self-taught when I was like 16. Um, and then, so I start, and then I kind of just like, it was like, you know what was weird, right? I started taking this drug. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound mental, right? And I don't know if this is scientifically accurate. But so I have like a um, low white blood cell count. I have a thing called neutropenia. Right. And um, I, um, it means that I have a low white blood cell count. So when COVID hit, right, my doctors were kind of freaking out a bit because I was like a high risk of infection. I see. When no one really knew what COVID was, right? <laughs> so I had all these appointments and they put me on this stuff that was, is called GCFS, Right. This gets, it gets given to cancer patients to increase, increase their white blood cell count because during chemotherapy, your white blood cells dramatically decrease, right? Mm. And they also treat, it's just a treatment for neutropenia, right? So they're like, right, let's boost this guy's immune system to make, keep him safe. Um, and they put, but I was like researching it. And th- another thing they use GCSF for is for like, um, what's the word? Like neuroregeneration in Alzheimer patients, right? And it, it basically cre- it's like a it stimulates I think it's neuron growth. So is this like Bradley Cooper and Limitless? You had that kind of pill, and now you've got like IQ of two hundred. I don't know if it was placebo or what. Like when I read that, but I just started. So I started taking guitar lessons. I started. I was like doing all these like YouTube courses on music production and video editing. I love this. and like I just for that I was on it for about. I'd say maybe six to nine months. And I, I learned the piano. I just learned like all of these really valuable skills wow. in like a very short space of time that I don't think I could do now. Maybe it was just because the pandemic 
It could have just been awesome. my diary was just fucking clear, you know. And I was just spending. I was just at home all day. So you are one of the rare people that use their time wisely. I used it. In, I know it's annoying, but I used it incredibly wisely. Like I, like I, I learned. I, I taught myself how to literally produce music, p- play electric guitar, play the piano, and edit videos and like shoot shoot videos. How did you structure your days? Like, did were you like doing hours block right, an yeah. hour on video production, and yeah. how that's what you're doing? Yeah. Did you like write it all down like as a daily schedule? No, I was just kind of like firing and also I was just wow. kind of like moving from one thing to the next. Wow. And I just got obsessed with it all. And I was like watching like YouTube videos and everything. And I was That's like, amazing. It was all I thought about. And also because I, I, was, I was lucky enough to be working okay. and having a day job. You know, I think a lot of comedians really struggle, right? But I was so, so privileged to have like a steady job that was working from home. You're a copywriter, right? Yeah, content maker. Yeah. Um, for, for a charity. And like... um, um. And so I just kind of, um, so I had like more expendable income and I wasn't spending any fucking money on getting to comedy gigs and, right. you know, g- going to fucking the arse. Actually, I feel like when you're first starting comedy, you spend so much fucking money on yeah. comedy. Yeah. Um, and so I was like buying all this kit as well with my extra money that I have because I wasn't leaving the fucking house. So I was just like buying like a new guitar and like, you know, like an all new audio setup and microphones and all that stuff. So during that time, I managed to like just managed to set up like a little studio, a little kind of my own little content studio and just fucking learn how to use it all. Um, and I just started making like videos every week. And the first like maybe 20 videos were just like shit videos. You kept yeah. on going. Were you filming on your phone? Yeah. Well, no, I, my girlfriend at the time, she had like a kind of DSLR filming like mixture of that and then um yeah i'm just on my iphone now i just film on my iphone do you yeah it's like and four, you edit 4K. on your iphone as well no i edit in premiere pro okay um that's so inspiring so i mean because i i've done various sort of facets of that but not gone down that road all encompassing the same way i mean i was talking to you before we started i i spent my pandemic writing scripts yeah yeah that's the road that i went down yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and writing treatments and that kind of thing, which is different because you don't get the you don't get the satisfaction of making something, putting it out, getting the you know getting immediate feedback. Which is the great thing about making content is that you just get it out there and then oh immediately. Yeah, well, you're... I started to really enjoy that, you know. Yeah, and I think you're right, and that because you know, like I was saying before, that like, I am like. You, you know that very like I just need that validation in my life you know? <laughs> and but I think I'd really turn my nose up to social media I remember because this is the thing I I was surprised when I first started seeing you yeah. making contact because I I recall us having a conversation because I've always had a fraught relationship with social media yeah and I think it must have been around 2018 and you saying you were really taking some time off from it yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I think I, you yeah. even went down the route of unfollowing quite a few, you know, yeah, yeah, people because yeah. and, and, you didn't want to feel like comparisons or you didn't want to yeah, compare. Yeah. That's what I remember the conversation being. So how were you able to sort of navigate through that? Is that now sort of a thing of the past where you're not really, are you in a different space mentally where that doesn't really bother you as much? Well, I think, I think, you know, this, the, the this trouble with social media, it's, it's so shit for your mental health when you're, consuming it and scrolling through it yes right you know um because you're you are just comparing yourself to other people but like when i started making content 
and people were like started getting like really people have always been so like I thought as well I was thought I was so scared of being judged on the internet you know I was mm. so scared of like people being trolls and people were just like misunderstanding things but I get so few I could count but I could count on one hand maybe okay the amount of negative things anyone's ever said to me and if if they are like if they've ever said something it's like well you have just completely misunderstood yeah this situation you're like not You've just not engaged with it. Like you're, <laughs> you're just, um, or you're purposefully trying to misunderstand it. I don't know. But people have been so nice. Other comedians have been incredibly nice. It's, re- I've been like kind of blown away by how supportive just other comedians are. Like, That's great. And now when I do gigs, like people are always so nice. Like, I, I don't know whether they're, they're just kind of like what they're saying behind my back. You know, you'll never know that kind of shit. But mm. now people are, oh, I like, Oh, I saw the latest video. It was really nice. And it, that's really nice, you know, to get that kind of approval from your peers. Yeah. And it just, and it also, now when I meet new comedians or like I'm, I gig with someone new that like often they'll say, oh, I saw your little video online. It's like a nice kind of icebreaker to like that's, meet people. That's what um, Will Robbins was saying. Cause you know, Will and Ben, they do lovely boys. So good. Which is really fun. And, um, and yeah, hilarious videos. And it's exactly the same thing as he, as he said. It's really nice. It, it comes up in conversation now with comedians. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. They sort of get uh, nice, nice supportive messages. So I think from that side of things, you know, it's actually been kind of nice, you know, like, um, and then something going viral. I mean, I'm not like, I feel like the way I'm talking makes it seem like I'm some like kind of content fucking guru. Like I'm, <laughs> I have like a still relatively very small amount of followers but you're offering paid classes on how to create content <laughs> yeah you can sign up to my course <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a, I've not got a lot of followers whatsoever. so many people way more followers than me but I've just had like a couple of videos go like a bit viral yeah and um uh it's um and when something does go like it's just kind of amazing to watch it like you just buzz. Like, watching your phone just like like I've got like my smartwatch and it's just going (laughs) and um, that is a buzz you know like I think um, and I think it's like you know with the Buddhism stuff like I've I I think I do have to come to terms with I think I spent a lot of my late 20s really fighting my ego Mm. and really thinking this is unhealthy Mm. my need for validation is really unhealthy and I want to overcome it and I want to sit in a fucking room and destroy my ego because it's a negative force. That, that's why you think you got into Buddhism in the first yeah. place? Right. Because I thought I thought a lot of that kind of ambition and just like need for validation was like, this isn't, um, this isn't healthy. Mm. Whereas I, I'm leaning towards now, like I think you can have a healthy relationship with it but you've got to be really careful with it as well. Mm-hmm. Because like, you know, when the, the the dark side of it is like when you post a video that you think is fucking sick, you think this is going to go. And, and, you're, flat. and you get in, you're getting in your head being like, oh, I can't, my, my watch is going to be going this afternoon. <laughs> and then it just gets like two fucking likes. And what do you do then? Do you delete it? Sometimes I delete, it. delete Sometimes so I keep stuff. it up, you know. Yeah. If I think it's funny. Some, because also, like, the algorithm just loves what it loves. Yeah. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't really mean that something's not funny just because it hasn't gone. Yeah. 
That should be your next one. Your next songs blame it on the algorithm. <laughs> There's a lot of algorithm blamers out there. Yeah, it's the algorithm. Your algorithm man. man. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's proven. My shit, my shit flies. <laughs> I'm shadow banned. You know, you ever see comedians on their Instagram stories being like, "I'm shadow banned again, guys." If you could fucking uh, search me and like all my stuff, <laughs> like, you're not shadow banned, brother. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I better stop posting that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but then that's useful, right? Because then you've got your little tools from like Buddhism, and then you can calm yourself down and real. Yeah, and like yeah, um, that's what Buddhism is so useful for. Is when you practice meditation, you know, like um, you can. It gives you opportunities to really totally see through the ego mm-hmm. yeah you know and i've got some questions that i'd love to know your experiences about that and um your experience of meditation and like how because you know the um the buddhist concept of anatta mm-hmm. right no self mm. um what's your experience with that of of no self yeah yeah I mean, it's a constant, like, tightrope, really. Mm. It's very much what you've described in terms of there's this pull to, you know, there's this side of me that craves validation and ambition, you know, that's driven by yeah. ambition. But also once you create, you want to create, create, create. Mm. And then there's the side of the ego where initially there was lots of questions, okay, up, there's a breakthrough moment. Up till the breakthrough, it's all sort of like, a headless chicken in a way. Yeah. I'm go- you're going around, you're doing all these things, but you don't really question why you're doing them. You, mm. you, you feel compelled to do them. So you, you're on stage, you're doing this, you're creating stuff, addicted to, you know, the validation mm. and the buzz, etc. And then after getting into it for a certain period of time, eventually you have these, I think they're only very like small moments where you have sort of these epiphanies. Because yeah. a lot of the time I find I'm meditating and I'm going, my mind's sort of in this repetitive mode, playing out the same old, so how long have you been meditating for now? I mean, my mum was a yoga teacher, so I got into it when I was 18. Right. But I'd been on and off. But in terms of Tree Ratner and London Buddha Centre since about 2014. Um, and I think, yeah, once I yeah once I sort of had that discovery that you were talking about in terms of, oh, I'm doing this because I need some kind of validation, then I was able to have a bit more of a healthy relationship. But mm. then there's a worry that you go too far the other side mm. that it becomes too like no self. Right. Yeah. And if it comes to no self, then do you even feel the need to perform? Do you even feel the need to create? Do you even feel the need for that validation? Mm. And mm. so it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky tightrope to, mm. to walk through. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. It's that's like each to their own. I think about as long, I think it's a good, like you were saying, as long as sort of you're aware of the neurotic side of the ego. Exactly. Yeah that's a really positive thing. And then then you're creating from a space of, I'm, I'm creating for the joy of it. I'm yeah. not creating to fill this void in my soul. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. been there since the move. beginning of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a really good way of putting it, I think. And neurotic's really true, I think. Like, um, yeah, like that's, that's like a, that's like psycho psychoanalysis, right? I read this amazing book recently. It was like um, called Psychoanalysis and Zen. Okay. And so I've done loads of therapy as well. 
I did long therapy for years. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. That's yeah. helped me a lot, right? Get to talk about yourself for a whole hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very self-involved. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but in, I think in psycho, psychoanalysis, as they talk about, like, you, you kind of have, like, your kind of, um, your kind of self or ego is constructed to, in kind of response to the world, right? Mm-hmm. As like almost a defense mechanism to keep you like safe. And so you just understand what the hell's going on, right? It's a very confusing place. Like if you are just experiencing like um, the world outside of egoic form, right? It's just like a constant um, barrage of sensations and thoughts, right? Mm. The ego is a stabilizing thought f- force in that. Um but when it becomes neurotic and starts running the show and being like, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, um, or everyone hates you. <laughs> <laughs> or swings wildly from one to yeah, the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is when it becomes a problem, right? Is that's when it's like running the show and you're no, you no longer have any agency over it and you're just responding to neuroticism yeah. as your main drive in life, you know? Yeah, it's, and it takes a lot of work to get past that. You know, I like, I don't know about you, but I feel at times I'll have breakthroughs and yeah. then it's sort of like two step forward, one step back. Yeah. But I think part of the key is when you're in that mode of just creating, in a sense, like there's some, the joyful aspect about it, it's like you're completely consumed by it. So you're yeah. in the present. So you don't have that space to question everything, to think yeah. about all these different things. You're like, because you're just doing it. Yeah. And that was the, the nicest thing about rediscovering like just music and like music production. So I can just get really lost in that for like hours, you know, right. like just like making a little synth track or like even just like, you know, sound designing what the synth sounds like. Um, and that is just so fucking fun. And that, and like, that is kind of a very just like joyful mode of creation. And then when you get to the comedy side of it, that's got to be a bit more like, okay, like that's a bit more hard work. Like make more it analytical, so, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You've got to be like, okay, well, it's more conceptual. Yeah. Comedy is like a very conceptual thing, right? Like you need to like play with like words and, you know, make sure everything's in the right order. And you have to, you make sure that the premise is here and the punchline's here, you know? Whereas music is like um, much more intuitive. You know, like you're kind of just like twiddling a knob or like playing a string and being like, oh, that sounds good or that doesn't sound good. But it's, but it's more like how you feel about it rather than that makes sense. Comedy has to just be, make so much sense. Yeah. It has to be so clear for people to laugh. Yeah. It's often it's like, oh, if I move that word there yeah. and I change that line for that line. Yeah. It's the exactly. rhythm changes and then there's the payoff. And the yeah. pa- it's, it, you know, it's all about sort of little minute changes and details. They have to really understand what the point of view is, what you're, just exactly what you're saying. Because mm-hmm. I think it's hard to like, even like surreal comedy has to be really grounded in like a real thing. And then you can go say something weird. And the weird thing is a juxtaposition of something grounded, right? Yeah. Whereas music, you can just do anything, you know? You can just kind of go off into all different types. I mean, and, the, you know, like it can be dissonant or consonant and all that kind of stuff. But I, I want to ask you about meditation retreats. Okay. So you've done loads of meditation retreats, right? Yeah, serial meditation retreats. How many have you done? 
I, I don't want to show off, but <laughs> you can show off. You can show. Off. I don't. I don't know how many I've done. I, I've tried to go every year since about 2014. Last year was the first year I did go on one uh, for a weekend, and I had insomnia. I had to leave early. Mm. A lot of uh, people leave, right? So some people. Do. I've never done that before. Yeah. Um, but I was with a serial snorer, and it uh, kept me up all night, and I just wasn't in a good state of mind. But I, I, I don't know. I've maybe done about. 15, maybe a bit more than that, wow. something like that. I Are they know. all 10 days or you do three days? No, I've only done one 10 day. Right. So the rest have been long weekends of five days. But the way, when I talk to people about it, you know, because it's, some people have a perception of it. If you've never experienced that thing, mm. it kind of seems a little bit uh, weird. You know, why would you go and sit down cross-legged for five hours a day just, you know, yeah. just working your mind? And I completely understand that if you've never experienced it before. But the way... I, I'll try and describe it. It's like it's like having an MOT on your mind. Yeah, it's just it's in, in you know it's like this maintenance, yeah, and you yeah, get yeah. to sort of have a complete refresh. It comes out and like all the cogs are moving smoothly. Did you also find that on the ten day that it was just kind of a reset? It's a bumpy ride. Yeah, the even, 10 days even, are bumpy. even like the the long weekends are bumpy. But I can imagine what you did in Vipassana, that's much stricter, right? That's more hardcore. Yeah. Because you're doing, isn't it like 12 hours a day? It's a, I think it's maybe 10 hours a day at least. <sighs> yeah. When but then you, you can that? meditate more. Um, so I did it at this place called IMC. It's like a Burmese. Um, so do you know the history of like the, the Vipassana retreat? No, go on. So in, in Burma, in... Um, I think it was maybe the 50s. I don't know. Might even been earlier. Um, basically, there was a big, or like even like early 1900s, I guess, there was a big problem with like, because um, it was a British colony, I think. And um, basically, there was loads of missionaries turning Buddhist Christian. So the Burmese were like, right, we need to put a stop to this. All of our lay Buddhists are becoming Christians. And that's annoying. <laughs> so um, there was like this drive called uh, for Vipassana retreats, which were, targeted at Burmese lay Buddhists to give them a taste of meditation. I think it was, they was even the tagline, like a taste to give, have a taste of enlightenment. Right. And, um, they set them up initially for the Burmese. Right. And, um, they would, um, I can't remember the guy. Saiji Ubakin was the guy. It's Burmese guy. Influential. And then he was like taught by all these like Sayadu. Do you know what a Sayadu is? Like, you know, you know much about Ther- Theravadan Buddhism. Yeah, I don't know too much about Theravada. Theravada is the stricter. So Theravadan Buddhism is the most ancient form of Buddhism. Yeah, it's only teachings from the Pali Canon, which is direct teachings of the Buddhism. Mm. But Buddha, direct teachings of the Buddha, so they say. Mm. Right, um, and um, so. They don't, so there's obviously other sects of Buddhism that have um, additional texts. You know, Tibetan Buddhism's got like loads and loads of more teachings on top of that. Um, but um, Theravadan's like, yeah, simplest, the Buddhist teachings, how you get enlightened, very entrenched in, you know, ancient Indian philosophy, you know, mm. like loads of stuff about reincarnation in there, which is like, that's one of the difficult things about the Vipassana retreat, right? Is they spend a lot of time talking about reincarnation, which is like... I, to more secular Western Buddhists, I think is a bit more challenging, right? Because then mm. you have to sit through a lot of talks being like, well, obviously in 18, 18 in 800,000 years, when you get reborn, this will start paying off. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, okay, but 
<laughs> what can we do now? <laughs> but um, so they started, they started these retreats. And then obviously like loads of Westerners start going to Asia in like the 60s and stuff. They start doing all these retreats. And the IMC was in Oxford, near, near Oxford. It's basically kind of run by... So Saiji Ubakin, his, he had a disciple, this woman, I've forgotten her name. Um, and she took over after him. She just sets up loads of Vipassana meditation centers all over the world. Well, she sets one up in, in this one near Chichester, which is near Oxford, I think. Mm. Um, and that's been going for ages, right? And that's the one I went to. So it's, but it's very adherent to traditional Burmese uh, Buddhism. And the teacher is this really nice guy called Roger. But he, um, he, he teaches to the word. He's like a, so he was a Pali scholar. He, he studied Pali, speaks, oh, wow. he, he reads Pali. And uh, tra- he's translated loads of Buddhist texts. Um, so he's like a real traditionalist Buddhist. So mm. he, he teaches in the exact words that he was taught all those things in, right? He really believes in keeping this tradition. And also like the, and the, so the meditation instructions are really set in stone, really specific. Um, and you, t- you, so you learn, you do Anapana meditation, which is like mindfulness of breathing for the first five days. Then you do Vipassana meditation, which is supposedly the meditation that the Buddha used to get enlightened. For the last five days, right. is that similar to the the metabhavna, as in you're developing compassion and empathy? No, so you don't do any metabhavna on the um, vipassana retreat. Okay, which is that's a good. That's what I like about London Buddhist centers. They do a lot of that. Yeah, that's a good meditation, I think. Mm. But so, um, yeah, and it's. I found it. I don't know. It was. It was a crazy experience, you know, because you're doing it. It's completely silent. For the full 10 days. So you have like um, maybe a morning yeah. where you're chatting and meeting people. Mm-hmm. No, actually, no, actually. So you get there on the, e- on the evening and then you kind of chat to a few people. Then you go into, you go into like an evening session of meditation. After that, you're silent until, excuse me, you're silent until the final day. And then you kind of get to chat to everyone at the end. It's like funny because like you've just been around all these people and you're like, suddenly you find out someone's Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought this guy was from like London the whole yeah, time. You develop all these assumptions about yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. He's a serial killer. <laughs> well, that's the, that, was, so that was the first step for me. It was like, I just started to really realize how much I craved the validation of other people. Okay. And I stopped. When was this? Sorry. This was in November. This was November just being? Yeah. Right. Okay. And I, I became obsessed with the other people on the retreat. I became obsessed with them liking me. I was like, <laughs> so fun, trying to like. So I've just got this image of trying to be really likable when you can't say yeah, anything. Literally, that's what I was so doing. So at the, the dinner table. Yeah. How, honestly, the salt, pepper? Yeah, yeah. That is exactly what I was doing. <laughs> I was like trying to let help. I was like, oh, oh, what should we play? Oh, what should we play? Yeah. Just kind of get any kind of fucking validation. And then you're, you're taught to like look down. Oh, you're not supposed to look at anyone in the yeah, eye, yeah. right? So I'm like holding doors open for people and they're just walking through and I'm like, this guy's rude. You say thank you and someone holds the door open for you. And then I was like, and then I started being like, oh, all these people will hate me. I started having like really rational, ra- irrational thoughts. And then I start going, 
I hate all of these people, right? I start mm-hmm. like having like, re- I start like roasting everyone on the retreat in my head being like, look at this fucking <laughs> dickhead. He thinks he's so enlightened with his eyes shut and he's not, he's good. And then like, I started having like, you know, I'm not proud of it, but started having like really negative thoughts about everyone else in the retreat. Just as like a response to like, I think it's one of the, it was the first time in my life that I was not able to modulate and control how people around me mm. feel. And I think that's a really common thing for, for comedians. You it's know? a really I, interesting I, observation. I think comedians, w- one of the reasons we're drawn to it is because we want to control how we're perceived by people. You know, yeah. we want, we want the approval. We want to know people like us, mm. you know, and comedy is a really useful thing for that. Cause everyone, if everyone in a room's laughing or you think, Oh, everyone likes me in this room. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think it's really as simple as that, but that's like, that's how you feel I think um so the first I found it just so hard and like and also the meditation teacher was like because he would just give you the strict meditation instructions and then he'd be like um and then you'd have um what did they call it uh examination it wasn't examination but it's where you kind of go to the front of the class and then he asks you like how's it going in front of everyone else yeah in front of everyone else and then you have to say, oh, I'm really struggling. And then he just goes. So the Anapana meditation is you just focus on the pure sensation on the, on the, the nostril of your nose. Yeah. You push out everything else. You can kind of know in breath, out breath. Any other thought, you're just focusing on this pure sensation for that 10 hours a day. And you go and be like, oh, I'm, I'm really struggling to find the sensation. And he's like, just find the sensation. <laughs> and you're like, okay, how do I do that? And he's like, just find the sensation, you know? Because he was, I think he was so careful to, I think he, it seemed to me like he was like, he did not want to interpret the teachings. Yeah. He wanted to deliver the teachings. Okay. So he, it felt sometimes like he wasn't being helpful. Because mm. it felt like he, you clearly know so much about meditation. You could give me a little pointer here. Mm. But he's like, nah, I just wanted to help. I just want to say what the Buddha said. Or I just want to say what my teacher said. Um. So then you're kind of getting angry at the meditation teacher and you're like, this guy's a fucking idiot. He's just like read, he's just learned a script from like, uh, from his teacher. And he's just saying that to me, this guy's not wise or enlightened. He's annoying. You know, I don't think that now. I think he was like an incredible teacher actually. But, um, but then, you know, doing the Anapana. So Anapana is like a tranquility meditation, right? Mm. It's like purpose is to calm the mind, right? And they say, achieve single pointedness of mind and after a while it starts working right and i had some like trippy experiences of like um you know like the only thing that i'm aware of in my entire conscious field is the is the um sensation of my nostril the the, the air hitting my nostril for like maybe like half an hour periods you know and you kind of lose your sense of time and you kind of come out of it you're like shit like then the world gets really intense because you've just kind of focused your attention down to such a small have you experienced that not in in the same way but i've had the you know, moments of like complete absorption yeah and, the absorption uh, states yeah yeah this is and, and then sort of these surges of energy you know coming up my up my body or my spine and but then it's an interesting thing because then they say because what tends to happen is you really enjoy those feelings and so you chase mm. them and then meditation becomes about trying to recreate those amazing feelings, yeah. which is 
the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. So for me, that came in the Vipassana meditation. Okay. I got some trippy experiences there. But for the Anapana, it's just very calming. You know? And your breath gets very slow and very, like, small. And then... Um, and you do get... You just get really relaxed. And then out... And then, so the, I, I, by, by, by the kind of third or fourth day... I was really enjoying the meditations because I was just so in such a calm space during the meditations. But then outside of the meditations, when I was just stuck with my thoughts and just like wandering around the grounds, that was incredibly, str- I was, my mind was going insane. You know, I was like imagining like my friends and family like dying and like, oh, wow. I was you having like really vivid, intrusive thoughts. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, If you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. Intrusive thoughts is exactly, that's the label that I've started to use more and more recently when I've become more aware of the patterns of my mind. I had a similar experience on the most recent retreat I went on and I had to walk out and lie on this field, lie in this field. Have you been to Vajrasana? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know when you walk out, beautiful in Suffolk and I walked out of the long driveway and I went to that field opposite and I just lied down, it was a sunny day. And I had to talk to my ego for like 15 minutes. I had this whole talk. I was just like, look, mate, I know you're terrified because you know that I don't need you right now. And you, you're just trying to sabotage yeah. my experience because I, I, I'm yeah. like in a, in a quite a good place without you. But can you please just fuck off? <laughs> that is how it feels. It feels like the ego is going like, I'm going to throw everything at you to not let you um, escape almost. Yeah. And, I, and then I use the line, which I'm going to use in stand-up, it's like, fuck you, ego, this is about me, not you. Yeah, 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 that's good. Um, I like that. But it'll go, because it'll, it'll bring up like traumatic memories or embarrassing memories. And I'll just be like spending like an hour like thinking about a time I like embarrassed myself at a party. Yeah. You know, things like that. But then not to bring it back all to, to comedy, but... If I find that if there are moments, but because often you just get completely consumed in those thoughts, right? But if you're able to take a step back and, and observe yourself in those yeah. moments yeah. and realize how ridiculous the thoughts are, there's so much comedy potential in totally. there. Totally. And that's a beautiful thing about comedy, right? Is that like it allows you to process anything relatable is game. Anything. So anything that's like shame inducing or like embarrassing you know, you can, if you can view that as a, as a universal experience rather than as a personal experience, because when it's shame, I think shame is often triggered when you think this is just me, that this has happened to yeah, yeah. And I'm the only person that's had this embarrassing situation. Yeah. But then like when you make a video about something like that and people are like, oh my God, I've been there, you know, that's incredibly um, relieving experience, you know, it's kind of connecting experience. It's connecting, yeah. To go like, oh yeah, like that embarrassing thing that I was thought was so awful. Loads of people have um, experienced it, and in making some kind of bit of like something, bit of content or something creative out of it, you kind of made some other someone feel less alone. Someone feel less alone, or that makes you feel less alone. You know, it's nice. Mm. 
Um, and I think that's like exactly what you're saying, right? Um, that is kind of where the ego and kind of creativity has its uses. You know, it can be used to make us feel less alone and connected to each other when it's used well, you know. 100%. And I find, you know, as a byproduct of doing these retreats or whatever it is, from a selfish perspective, I do find that it does enhance my creativity. But in a sense, it's not selfish because, as you say, if off the back of that, you create something and you put it out there in whatever shape or form it is, whether it's on stage or whether it's via content and someone can connect with it and they yeah. think what you've just said, oh, I'm not the only one going through this, then it's sort of a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. And I think there's a dark side to that, you know, as well. Like I think you can, I think you can, I think there are people that make content that is not, it's the, the goal isn't to connect. It's to like, you know, make fun of, or like, you know, um, just kind of mean spirited in its nature. Yeah. Right. And um, I think that's the, that's the kind of downside to it as well. You know, but as long as you're doing it with good intentions, I think it's fine, you know. I think so, yeah. I think, you know, having the awareness to aim to punch up rather than punch down. Definitely. But, um, so after the Anapana, so you get to a nice point with your mindfulness of breathing and then they bring in um, Vipassana, right? And the way they bring in the Vipassana meditation is so fucking funny because it's so dramatic. <laughs> so obviously they have this um, central tenet of Buddhism, right? Which is Dukkha described as like suffering or unsatisfactoriness, right? Not got a great direct translation, right? But he starts, so you, so you, they take you in for your first Vipassana session. Everyone's kind of looking forward to it, you know. Everyone's like, oh, okay, we've got a new meditation doing today. And then he's like, so in Theravada Buddhism, Vipassana meditation is you, it's like a body scan meditation mm. where you like feel, from the, you scan from the head to your toe and you're like um, trying to just feel every sensation, heat, you know, heaviness, whatever, like cold, um, just like a tingling sensation, whatever you're just kind of going up and down. They try and make you avoid your mind and just kind of focus on the body. And um, they they bring it up, and the the guy Roger is like, feel the body and focus on the misery of it, <laughs> and feel the chest and focus on the misery of it. <laughs> His like voice was getting scarier. Like it was so intense. And cause you've just spent like five days, like calming yourself down and just focusing on your breath. Suddenly he, it's like a complete switcheroo. And they're like, now feel every sensation in your body and focus on its impermanence and the fact that it is unsatisfactory and it is painful. That's a head fuck. And people lost their shit. Really? People were like crying. Wow. People immediately left that room and packed their bags and just got in their cars and left. Really? Like about three people. Wow. It was like incredibly traumatic. I was losing it. Like I, I left that, I left that session. I went to the bottom of the garden and I just cried my eyes out 
for ages. Okay, and right. I was like, I need to go, man. This is like not what I signed up for. I was like signed up for like a calm time. Yeah. Calming the mind down. And you're asking me to basically confront my own mortality. <laughs> and you've sprung that on me very quickly. And it was, it felt like a mean move. Yeah. And, and there were people, there was this guy, lovely guy who I kind of made friends with the first day. I've forgotten his name now. Really nice guy. And he was just like fuming. He had like a real anger response. Mm. And when we went in for checking the next day, he was like visibly very angry at the teacher. You know, he was like, I just don't get it. I think, I think this is not calming. This is actually really stressful and it's making me really angry. And he was kind of, I think this is a load of nonsense. And like, he was kind of like being very critical. Mm. And, um, and it, that was kind of, I, I was keeping a journal, right? And my journal from that day is hilarious. Cause I was like, I fucking hate everyone here. I think Roger's an idiot. I think he's like, um, I think Buddhism is just wrong. And it's like a complete, um, overreaction, which like life isn't about suffering. You know, life isn't all about suffering. There's loads of pleasure in life and you can have a pleasurable life and uh, you don't need to focus on suffering. That's stupid. <laughs> and then. But then um, I just decided to stick with it. Because I saw everyone leave and I was like, I don't want to do that. You know, I feel like, I feel like this is part of the plan. I feel mm -hmm. like they do this for a reason at least, you know. And I've stayed this long, so I'll just put up with it. But at that point, I was really just hating on Buddhism, to be honest with you. I was like, uh this is dumb. This whole thing's dumb. <laughs> and then um, I, um, but then I just stuck with it and started to, started to um, do the Vipassana body scan and started to like realize that like, although that is kind of stressful focusing on like the suffering and so the, what he teaches you to focus on is the change. So he says Vipassana is like a, meditation on change and you okay. watch how the sensations in your body actually um appear and fade away in like a millisecond right which is the idea of impermanence yeah and so in buddhist philosophy you know about kalapas right no <laughs> so kalapa I'm very uneducated buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> you need to do a fast because i fucking tell you all this shit but um a kalapa is um and i'm sure actually in the in um in, this is ter this is very Theravadan stuff. Okay, I think a lot of more modern revisionist Buddhists would be like, "This is a load of fucking. This isn't important." Yeah, but they just believe all this stuff to be completely true in Theravadan. There's no like up for debate. Like, oh, well, maybe you know how sometimes in Buddhist circles you'll have like, well, maybe karma is like a metaphor for mm. like how you know good deeds and um, can kind of. Um, you know, be paid back in real life. And if you're a good person, good things happen to you. In Theravada, they're like, no, karma is a real force that mm. exists. But a kalapa is basic, basically like an atom. And they say that in, it, how reality works is that there are like billions of kalapas that make up reality, which kind of appear and disappear a thousand times a second. And that's how reality is constructed, basically, which is mental, because that is kind of like atomic theory. <laughs> yeah. Like it's quite close to atomic theory, mm. but they just thought that 
thousands of years before atomic theory was ever scientifically observable. There's a there's a correlation between Buddhism and, and physics for sure. Quantum yeah. physics. Yeah. At the London Buddha Center, I don't know if you've come across a guy called Yana Varcha. No. <clears throat> he was the he was the chairman at LBC. He's like whenever I describe him, he's sort of like the closest human being that I've come across who's like a real life Yoda. Right. You nice. know every sense of the word. And um he he's very much into quantum physics and he'll interview physicians at the yeah. at the Buddha Center and find correlations between physics and Buddhism. Wow. That's yeah. great. It's quite heady. But you're right. I think there are like that kind of theory of um reality is like considering they just came up with that as in their minds. It is so you know if you look at like Christianity and stuff like that, like there's nothing that had any anything in common with quantum physics, but through meditation, Buddhists have developed that as an idea. It makes you think there is something in meditation, right? So that they got that close to how actual reality is structured. But um, anyway, I forgot why I mentioned Kalapas. But going back to your Vipassana experience, so you came out of that, and it sounds like it was quite a challenging but rewarding experience. How do you think that's how, or do you, are you aware of any kind of impact that it's had on you in terms of I don't know your perspective on life and your your work as a comedian? So the biggest thing I realized, which has really stayed with me. So when I first finished it, I was like, because I'd always thought in the past, like maybe I'll become a Buddhist monk. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then that experience made me feel like I do not want to become a Buddhist monk. Okay. I do not. I like life. I like comedy. I like, you know, having a girlfriend. I like all those, I like drinking pints, yeah. like all those things. Yeah. Um, And so that was useful in itself, you know, that kind of put that to bed, that idea that I should be like this stoic, you know, egoless being. Because you know? it creates tension, doesn't it? Yeah. There's a push and pull. I was like, I don't want, I know I don't want that. Yeah. But the biggest thing it taught me was that you don't have to do any, you know, you know, this is a cliche phrase, but like all, all, all things pass. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that before I did the Vipassana, I felt that if I have, if I'm in a negative space in my head, mm-hmm. I need to do something to rectify it. I need to eat, whether it's kind of like pursue some form of pleasure, like have a nice bit of food or like try and find someone to go on a date with or, um, just do some comedy or like get some approval from someone or, you know, just have a sleep or something. Um, I always thought it was my job to fix my negative mental state. Whereas on the past night, I was having such mad negative spaces, but then they would only last like two hours. Mm. I'd be like stuck in like a really intense negative thought pattern just over and over again, like almost like thinking that like someone I love is going to die. Because like, obviously you can't, you lose your phone, right? They give you, you hand your phone in at the door and it's like in a locked and locked box. So I'd be like obsessing that like, oh, someone I love is um, going to be hurt or injured and I, 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 I won't know about it. And I'd be like, oh, you know, oh, like my girlfriend's cheated on me. She's like, mm. oh, they're cheating on me. Yeah. I'd be like obsessing about that. Yeah. Um, and I'd be like, oh, and I'd be like, oh, just over and over again, over and over again, thinking, get myself really worked up. But then after an hour, that thought would just pass yeah, completely, subsides. and it would go. 
Mm. And I didn't have to do anything to make it. I just had to. You sit with it. Just had to sit with it. Yeah. Yeah. And because I had no other choice than to sit with it, Mm. it was such a powerful realization that, oh, like these things are, are temporary and you are, you're doing a meditation on impermanence every for hours and hours a day. Mm. So all you're thinking about is change, 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 change. I was like, you know, in your head, change, change, change. And then carrying that through to even like negative thought patterns, you see it. And it also, it was, this is kind of, I don't know, lame, but it was autumn <laughs> at the meditation retreat. So the leaves were like falling off the trees. Symbolic. So you had all this symbolism of change yeah. in yeah, the yeah. grounds, you know, you kind of, so like, um, it was like, and that, I, I think about that every single day. No, wow. I think, I think about it multiple times a day. And it is, that has been the most, yeah, the most valuable lesson I learned on it that has just completely stayed with me. And it's not something I even have to like actively do now. Like it's not something I have to actively remember. I think like every time I'm in like a, yeah, negative thought pattern. I just go, well, I don't have to do anything. I just have to wait for this to go. And that's a just, real gift. It's just true. It's just such a gift. Yeah. yeah. Such a gift. And I, to see that kind of Buddhist philosophy of, you know, in, they call it a Nietzsche change, impermanence, right? <laughs> to see, um, to see that working constantly, um, is like a very, very powerful thing to witness, right? And it's also true of like positive stuff as well. Like it makes you realize like, oh, however hard I strive to make my life sick and like free of suffering, there will be pain. Mm. There's no, The change goes both ways, right? Yeah. It is unavoidable. And I think that is what the basis of Buddhism, right? Pain is Pain and suffering is unavoidable. Basically, you become the party pooper. You're all out for <laughs> Guys, I know we're having a good time, but just to remind you, this all could change in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'm constantly doing that. I'm telling people, just you wait. You're smiling now. <laughs> you, you wash away that sadness, but it will come back to bite you on the bum, my son. <laughs> but I think that's such a scary thought in like Western culture. Hugely. Our entire culture is built around avoiding pain. We just, we, that's the whole basis of consumerism, isn't yeah. it? You know, we're, these these messages are constantly thrown at us to buy, to consume, to do whatever it is to take us away from the pain and the fear. Yeah. Oh, that we're going to die. And I saw this, that you know, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, that Buddhist monk? Yeah. Crazy guy. I mean, we could talk about that guy. Very controversial figure, right, in Buddhism. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a talk by him where he's just talk- he said it's hopeless <laughs> <laughs> this is a guy this is a guy who's up there he's supposedly maybe even enlightened yeah 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 and that's what he's coming out with he goes it's hopeless <laughs> right and that is such a depressing thing to hear on mm. its surface right mm. but it's also a liberating thought you know it's like you can't you can't turn back the tide you can't, um, there's no way of avoiding it all, you know. But then people will choose to interpret that in different ways. One person will, will listen to that and then decide to become a nihilist. 
right? Yeah. Oh, what's the fucking point? Might as well just get fucked up. Yeah. And someone else might be more into eternalism and will take that more philosophical perspective. Mm. So, I mean, it's horses for courses. Well, so this is where I think I... So, so I think all that kind of... A lot of like Theravada and stuff. So the pursuit of enlightenment, right, in Buddhism is interesting, right? Because it's like in a world where um, reincarnation exists, right? You're on the endless wheel of samsara and the mm -hmm. suffering is never ending for eternity. In that philosophical context, the only reasonable thing to do is try and attain enlightenment. Reach nirvana, escape the wheel of rebirth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then the suffering will end, right? And a lot of, like, Buddhist thought on suffering, I think, is really grounded in reincarnation. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you pursue enlightenment if that was true? But I think, I don't think I believe in reincarnation. And I think it is possible to live a life of um it's it's possible to live a life where you enjoy it more than you hate it yeah without a doubt you know it's that is available to us not available to everyone you know there's a lot of like luck and privilege uh -huh. involved in that but um it's possible that you enjoy your life more than you suffer i think and if you just take that on one on one on a, on one lifetime then enlightenment becomes less important because you don't need to escape. You can just live with wisdom, you know, and like make sure you're looking after yourself and make sure you're being kind to people, make sure you're being loving, make sure. And also you can have a positive effect on other people. You can make sure that the people around you are happy and mm -hmm. that they're loved and that um, they're, yeah, you can be a you you yourself can be a positive influence on the world, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than causing suffering, you can deliver a net benefit, um, and that's I think where I lie with Buddhism now. Is like I don't think it's a requirement to pursue enlightenment, you know, whatever that means, right? But I think these are very powerful teachings that are completely true about the nature of the mind and how you can really work with the nature of the mind. I think that sounds like a really healthy conclusion that you've come to, given the experiences that you've had, particularly your Vipassana last year. Um, you know, you, you've, you've almost sort of been forensic in your analysis to try and work out what's right for you. Yeah. And you've come to that conclusion having, having been through it, having experienced it, which is, I think, a really great, great position to be in. So uh, here's a medal. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you sit with it? Where do you sit? With I, it? I'm very much in in the similar camp to you. Um, I, but I, I I'm a man of extremes, Matty. Um, mm -hmm. And I I went, I did what's called the this uh, Mitra study group for yes, four years. I remember you saying, yeah, where you just sort of meet weekly and you with sort of this group of men and uh, Buddhists who are far more learned than than myself, and you study the Dharma. Um, which you can tell is paid off because I know nothing about it. Um, uh, and then, and then I thought you were going to be schooling me on the Dharma today, so I'm quite no, pleased. Yeah, no, it's the ADHD. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, the thing is, the thing is, it's an interesting point though because I think 
as long as you can take the fundamental elements of it yeah. and apply it in a practical way to your everyday life, yeah. that for me is more important than understanding and grappling with the more intellectual elements of of Buddhism. And because you know, there's countless amounts of the countless gods. They've got very long names, yes. very long yeah, names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got a lot of ordained Buddhist friends. Do I remember their names? No. <laughs> Do I call them mate? Yes. <laughs> So, you know, that, they that, like to rename themselves with like, especially at the London Buddhist Center. Yeah. Well, I, I went down the route of asking for ordination, but then I rescinded it. I, I took back that offer because I was, I, I, I didn't feel the right at the time it was right for me. It's, it feels right. like I wanted to treat it with the respect it deserves. And I couldn't commit to doing that. Mm. I didn't want that to be the sole priority in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't see myself changing my name, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to be a Muhammad Ali, but I don't have the skill set. <laughs> yeah. I think that's Islam. Yeah, you know, but applying that to Buddhism, I mean, that, even that doesn't really work because you're not supposed to have, you know, violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I do, you know, I like jujitsu and boxing, all these things right. which aren't applicable to the way of, of, of Buddhist life if you right, want to be right, a sort right, of right, 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 authentic right. OG, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- those are things that I, I sort of grappled with and... um I, I'm at a place now where, yeah, I, I call it the middle way. Yeah. You know, where I, I'll still have it in my life and I, I meditate every day. But I don't see myself as becoming a, a monk, like you said. Um, who knows further down the line? But I, I, I just don't see that. It's as good my to have life. it as an option. It's a backup, right? If everything else fails. Yeah. Like if I'm like a lonely 70 year old man. Maybe I've gone bankrupt through a series of uh, failed businesses. Then I can just go to a monastery. Then exactly, you say it's Plan B. Yeah. So that's you know it's, it's good to park that. Yeah. Have it in there. When I'm a complete failure, and that's probably the time you should pursue enlightenment. Yeah, that's the time to ponder. Really, isn't it? <laughs> Where, did it <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? So, on the comedy side of things. Do you have an ultimate dream or goal? What would be what would be the place where you'd be like, oh, do you know what? This is this is what I've kind of been striving for. I'm I'm very content with this. Um, good question. You know what? It's, this is going to sound corny, right? But I am with the, where I am now. Like, I don't I don't think like I'm a big name in comedy. I don't think anyone's you know very few people know who I am. But like I'm at a point now where I get to like, you know, open and close some of like, like clubs all over the country. I get to like play some of my favourite London clubs. Like, you know, I, was, I just had a great gig at the Bill Murray on Thursday, which was so fun. And I'm pretty content. I, I'm like, because like, I think I was so like, weird like low self-esteem when I was like younger mm. <laughs> like I kind of still like can't believe that I'm at this level right yeah I'm kind of impressed with myself that I'm here yeah like, and especially when I was a kid like I would have never thought that I'd be able to like stand in front of like a room full of people and make them all really laugh mm. you know and I still get a real buzz from doing that you know and I like having respect from my peers and I just love being around comedians. You know, I know people, comedians hate on comedians so much, but I really like comedians, I think. I feel like real kindred kindred spirits with comedians, you know, and I'm really comfortable around them. And I know that they are annoying people to most people. Like, I think when people, (laughs) when people meet comedians, 
in real life, right? They're like, who is this neurotic weirdo? Um, <laughs> or like, they're just not, I think a lot of comedians are very sincere as has been judged by this conversation, I think. You know, real overthinkers and real like neurotics. Um, and I think non-comedians can be like, oh, this is not what we thought comedians were like. But, you know, I like, because I'm like that. I like being around other people that are like that. You know, it makes me feel less alone. It makes me feel like um, more, uh, I, I just like that there are other people like me that are like that, you know, and we're all kind of share this bond of doing this like stupid thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're going through a similar thing. You've all gone through this experience that is a shared experience. Only other comedians know what it's like to get up on the stage yeah. and bear your comedic soul. It was intensely humiliating. Yes. Being a comedian. So, yeah, so, so there's this sense of camaraderie. Yeah. You know, if, if you die on stage, sort of everyone's there willing you on. Not to die on stage, but, yeah. you know, supporting for the most part, I find. Well, because most people's like worst nightmare, right? It's How can like, you do that? How could you go on stage to do it? It's my worst nightmare. Like, and it is horrible. Like mm. trying to make, like you, you always have gigs, right? Where you're just trying to make people laugh and they're just going, this is not funny. Yeah. And they don't know that you've made loads of people laugh before. That audience just go, this person is a loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's nice. And I think that's, that's, uh, it takes a certain type of person to put themselves through that, definitely. Oh, yeah, as, as discussed. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've talked obviously about the, uh, about meditation and, and Buddhism, but what else do you do outside of, of your career to relax and unwind, Matty? Relaxing and unwind, God. I mean, I'm not great at relaxing and unwinding, to be honest with you. We bumped into each other at the gym. That was another random place. Yeah, I'm no longer in the gym. Okay. I do like a weird little kind of a pull-up workout every morning now. Okay. Um, do a bit of exercise, do a bit of running. But I did a marathon last year. Oh, wow. And it was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. My, my girlfriend just did the Brighton one. I hated it. I got injured. <laughs> I finished it. I did it about five and a half hours, pathetic time. And my, both my knees went and my hip went. I mean, and it, I was in agony. Our bodies aren't supposed to it was stupid. put through that, are they? I was fuming. The whole way around, I was so fucking annoyed. We, was it similar to the passenger we saw uh, the, the other runners who were running past you? Yeah, fuck you. They were all going like, "Come on, mate, you can do it." I'm like, "Fuck <laughs> off!" I'm going as fast as I can, just like hobbling for miles and miles and miles. So after that, I was like, "I'm just done with exercise." Yeah, <laughs> do a bit of stretching, do a bit of very light exercise now. I think that's me done. I do want to get like really buff, like, because I, I, I lost my hair, you know, I'm a bald man. And I think every bald man wants to get hench. Jeff Bezos or Bezos. Yeah, even. it's a real, the bald man to henchman pipeline is real, I think. Or well, you just go down the Larry David route. Just yeah, yeah. Well, that's I'm a multi-millionaire through comedy. Fuck, <laughs> needing to be buff. You either have to be buff or a multi-millionaire when yeah. you're bald. There's only two options available. To Wait, you. Jeff Bezos managed to do both, but yeah, he, yeah. it's because of the money, right? He's, he's paid. The, you're right. He's the king of bald men. He's the king of the world. King of the world. Yeah, he's my hero. 
<laughs> I have a sh- you, Stephen has a shrine to the Buddha in his in his room, but I have just a big basil basil shrine. Sun. Yeah. <laughs> just, um, I mean, yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, I've tried to wean myself of Amazon. I just can't. No, it's impossible. It gets you in there. It's a thrill getting those deliveries every oh day. Oh my god, it's unstoppable. <laughs> Who are we kidding ourselves? Nah, it's never going to happen. <laughs> um, are there any any books? that you have read over the course of your life, Matty, that have had uh, an impact on you, major impact on you in some shape or form? Loads and loads of books. There's this book, right? It's called Letting Go by um, David R. Hawkins, MD. Okay. Right? And like, my disclaimer is this book is mental, right? It's like he calls himself a doctor. I can only assume he is with the MD in the title, but... It is not like a sound scientific book on psychology, right? He's like a, he's got a lot of out there um, views, right? And, but it's basically a book about how to, he's, his, his kind of central theory is the reason we get all kind of stressed out and, and anxious and depressed is because we are unable to let go of our emotions, which is what you were talking about earlier yeah. in your experience. And I really relate to that idea. And I think in my um, kind of uh, younger days, I was a, I think I've repressed and suppressed so much emotions and fought negative emotions and been like, you feel sad, but oh, you really want to f- just feel happy. Just try and feel happy. Try mm. and feel like, mm. try and feel grateful and just tie myself in knots of like kind of fighting myself mentally. <laughs> And when I read this book, it was like a real, um, he kind of talks about the mechanism of letting go and just kind of like breathing and um, like feeling your emotions. It's basically like, instead of resisting your emotions, feel them. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's another book actually about that. So it's, what was it called? The Happiness Trap. I've heard of that book. Which is basically a book about... um, do you know, it's not CBT, but it's like mindfulness-based CBT. Yeah. And that is talks about how instead of like resisting and fighting your emotions. So CBT is often about cognitive behavioral therapy, if anyone doesn't know, right? Is often about, um, you know, analyzing your thoughts and going, are they true? Mm. Or how likely is this thought? Like basically looking at your thoughts and going, my thoughts aren't actually true they are just kind of mental representation representations of reality and sometimes they're not real mm-hmm. often they're not real and often they're not meaningful and we shouldn't attach so much meaning meaningfulness to them mindfulness-based cbt is similar but it's like is this helpful so i look at a thought and go okay whether it's a negative thought i go well is this actually useful to me in any way mm-hmm. and if it's not can i just let that go or let it exist yeah and rather than fighting it just let it exist and it'll pass on its own, right? And those two books, The Happiness Trap and Letting Go, really, really, ta- really, really helped me in just like learning to let go of emotion. Mm. And I think it's such a difficult thing to, I, I bet there are people out there that hear that and go, I feel anxious all the time. You know, I've had periods in my life where I've basically had chronic anxiety, mm-hmm. anxious 24-7. Yep. And i and at the time, I think I would have gone like, but I want to let go. Like, I, I don't want to feel like this, you know. And I, It's annoying for someone to say, just let go, right? Mm. It's kind of an annoying thing. But I think with some 
with some commitment, I think it is possible to let go of anxiety. And those two books are two things that really just helped me work out a mechanism for doing it. Brilliant. So I'd really recommend those. There's another book that I've just been reading, actually. It's by Brené Brown. It's Brené Brown's new book. Okay. You know Brené Brown? Yeah. She did the TED Talk and went viral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Vulnerability. She, vulnerability. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She's got a new book. It's kind of like the Encyclopedia of the Heart or something like that. It's not called that, but it's her latest book. It's just come out. Um, and um, that is all about understanding your emotions and understanding, you know, how... What, where, like the com- the complex differences between, for example, like resentment and jealousy, and how they, and I think it's useful in like therapy and in your life to be able to understand how you feel, mm. so then you can go at least place it and place it within a context, and then you can go, well, should I feel like that? You know, I I came from my my parent my parents were great and very loving, and my childhood was amazing, but. We, we weren't very communicative of our feelings, you mm. know? Um, and so like through therapy and stuff, I've managed to start to like develop a vocabulary for how I feel mm. and like know that, oh, when I'm sad, I'm, I'm sad about this. or this is like shame or this is guilt or this is resentment or jealousy rather than it all just feeling like anxiety mm. or fear it's useful I think to be able to get specific about what exactly you're feeling and then that allows you to move through it so that's a really good book I think for anyone that's like I think a lot of you know men in the past have like or you know to to this day struggle to express how they feel or even know how they feel yeah you know I think any guide that you can have to understand understand your internal world is so useful it's quite a liberating feeling when you're able to name them and then express how you're feeling yeah. as well yeah rather than you're right mate yeah fine mate you yeah yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah all good yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, i'm pissed off yeah i'm feeling a bit sad <laughs> do you want a pint <laughs> i think a lot of men just go to that like, anger right yes that's good you know like, that's a very dad move to mm. go like, i'm really fighting against the world yeah when actually underneath that is some fear or some sadness or some grief or whatever it fucking is. Yeah, know? just naming it really helps. Yeah. And then there's another another bit of advice that I read recently. It was like, um, if you're feeling in a negative state, it's unrealistic for you to try and push t- to go from a negative state to a really positive state. But what you can do is choose the next best feeling. And, and Great advice. So, Great advice. Uh, so if you're you're angry, you can maybe go to sadness and then you go to a sliding scale. Yeah. And I found that's quite useful. Yeah. Or if you're resisting feeling angry, you can stop resisting it. Yeah. Feel it. Yeah. I've I've another thing, I think who's it? Maybe a therapist or someone screaming into a pillow. I've done that a few times. Oh really? Primal scream. Really primal scream. Yeah. And uh Definitely. I mean, it works. You don't do it before you're going to perform, though, because the vocal cords. <laughs> <laughs> I need to pretend. I lose my voice every single Edinburgh instantly, like the second day. Yeah, I'm good. Just like steaming my voice the whole time. Do you do warm up exercises? I should do. Warm up, yeah. I should do. 
I just don't. <laughs> something, something for the future. Um, final question, Matty, uh, I ask all the guests that come on the podcast is, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? Oh, that's a nice question. I like that. I think um, it's like what you said, you know, the Buddhist principle of the middle way is good. Mm. Sums it up really nicely. I like that you said that, like, um, I've been in, I've had times in my life where I've tried, like, you know, I've thought I need to be like successful at any cost. Yes. You know, and I will put my life on hold until I'm successful. Mm. I think loads of comedians do that, actually. Mm. I see loads of comedians be like, I will not get a girlfriend or I will work a really soul-destroying job because soon I'll be, like, famous and then then I can start enjoying my life. And I think it's a risky move. Agreed. I think it's a risky move. It's a big risk to think... I, I will start enjoying myself when I'm successful. Mm. And the older you get, the more risky that becomes, mm-hmm. right? So like you do just need to balance. If you're like being so driven that you're just not enjoying yourself, it's not worth it. Mm. You know, your whole life will pass you by. You're not enjoying anything. And it's easy to enjoy yourself in the moment. You don't have to be a famous comedian to enjoy yourself. You know, there's lots of things to enjoy about life. <laughs> Um, you can have really fulfilling relationships. <laughs> of course, that's such an obvious thing to say. Mm. I think some people do fucking miss that. Mm. Um, and but equally, I think I've you know, and then I've also had periods in my life where like I've just done fucking nothing. You know, I've just wanted to just go and get pissed on a Friday night. And I've just spent the rest of the week just what playing video games. You know, definitely in my early 20s, I was a lazy guy, mm-hmm. you know. And then I had loads of catching up to do because there were people like, I just, I was basically, when I was like 20, it was, oh no, when I was like, yeah, graduated uni, I had no idea what I wanted to do for a job. I was just working in a call center in Warrington, earning like 14 grand a year. And I was just getting screamed at by Vodafone customers all day. And I was like, okay, you need to um, do something here because no one is going to stop you from this, this this just being your life. Yeah. So I need to like get moving. And that was a time where I had to like just try and get myself into a better life position. And I had to just commit to working really hard for a bit and making some stuff happen. So that's the art. The, 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 the balance is the obvious bit. I think everyone knows they have to get balance, right? It's like trying to work out what that balance is. Yeah, and it's going to be different for every individual. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, Matty, where can people follow you to keep up to date with your content and where you're gigging and so forth? Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me around, Steve. I mean, this exactly. has been so, it's been so nice to chat to you again, man. Yeah, you too. I've always enjoyed our, our conversations. when we've, They've either been in passing or at gigs. I remember the first time we did... I remember the very first time I met you was at the Musical Comedy Awards. I don't think we'd met before that. Don't think so. And I remember passing you on the stairs before the gig. And within two minutes, we we would... Improv. We were doing an improv bit <laughs> with each other, and it was just very natural, and oh, it didn't nice. feel very forced. And I was like, 
I don't know who this guy is, but I like him. Oh, nice. I felt that. I've always felt that about you. Yeah. We always, we've always gotten into it, you know? Yeah. And I hope we gig together soon. For sure. Um, but yeah, um, uh, you can find me on Matty Hudson, M-A-T-T-Y, Hudson with a T. People never find me. Everyone thinks it's Hudson. Uh, Matty Hudson on Instagram. I can't remember what my TikTok handle is, but it's Matt Hudson 15, I think, or something. And then Twitter's just at Matt Hudson. Yeah, just put have a look on that. I've got loads of comedy videos, loads of musical comedy, loads more to come. So yeah, I mean, I feel like we've just had a very sincere chat about Buddhism and that when people see my videos, they're going to be like, who is this guy? <laughs> I think that's really interesting, though, because they get to see, you know, the real Matty. Yeah. It's been, well, another it's, a side of Matty. Yeah. It's been nice to have this chat, you know. Like, I, I don't think I've ever talked publicly in this way before. So. Oh, well, I appreciate you, yeah. you doing so and being so forthright and, and honest. And I'm sure other people will, will do and will be really be able to relate to what you've said and your experiences. I hope so. So, uh, thank you. If you hated it, don't tell me. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> I'm sure that won't be the case. Matty, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, mate. Perfect. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.